You're listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. This is issue number six. Community is a practice. As part of our issue of Attention focused on community and architecture, this episode highlights how the faculty and students of schools and universities advanced community design, both in general and in their own neighborhoods. In episode two, we learned about how the nascent community design movement responded to government-led programs of urban and social renewal in post-war America. While government-sponsored urban renewal programs in the 1950s and 60s decimated established neighborhoods and communities, federal anti-poverty programs in the 1960s and 70s hoped to create civil society organizations that could respond to the inequalities created in part by post-war urbanization. In 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed into law a suite of legislation. It was intended to address the social and economic ills that had already begun to cause significant social unrest in cities across the United States. Here's Johnson in his famous speech, January 8, 1964. And this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. The backbone of this war on poverty was the founding of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Office of Economic Opportunity, and volunteer and job training programs through VISTA and the Job Corps programs. The idea was that progress could only be made by attacking the root causes of poverty, health, education, job creation, and inclusive urban development. But these programs were not just about delivering services to the poor. They also mandated maximum feasible participation. In episode two, I discussed how Carl Lynn provided a model for participatory urban design, demonstrating one way designers might organize nonprofits working at the neighborhood scale to meet a mandate such as this. He was only one of many attempts by designers to adapt the profession to the demands of civil rights, black power, and other social movements. These designers also took advantage of new government programs to channel federal funding to where it was most needed. This created a challenge for architects and other well-meaning liberal professionals. They stood both within large public and private institutions and also against the policies and practices that exerted these institutions' influence at the expense of poor and minority communities. In this episode, we examine this dynamic in Berkeley, California. In 1969, the events of People's Park catalyzed a decade of struggle and debate. They centered on the role of the university generally, and architecture and planning in particular, in the destruction and possible reimagining of urban communities. In presenting this story, we consider how particular objects of concern or sites of controversy connected designers to political movements within and beyond the safe boundaries of higher education. By the 1960s, incidents at Columbia University in Harlem and Yale in New Haven called attention to the transparent attempts of universities to claim neighborhood space for facility expansion. For many urban activists, these moves came to represent the hungry reach of a racist and exclusionary institution. At the same time, universities across the U.S. were educating the next generation of designers, young people craving new ways of being architects and new ways of achieving the just city. Here's a clip from the Columbia University protest 
from a 1969 documentary that captures the anger and determination of student and community activists to stop this expansion. It also shows the way that they linked it to the school administration's deeper complicity in domestic and international wars against black and brown people. We now demand, we no longer ask a say in decisions that affect our lives. We call on all students, faculty, staff, and workers of the university to support our strike. We ask that all students and faculty not meet or have classes inside buildings. We have taken the power away from an irresponsible and illegitimate administration. We have taken power away from a board of self-perpetuating businessmen who call themselves trustees of this university. We are demanding an end to the construction of the gymnasium, the gymnasium being built against the will of the people of the community of Harlem, a decision that was made unilaterally by powers of the university without consultation of people who, whose lives it affects. We are no longer asking but demanding an end to all affiliation and ties the Institute for Defense Analysis, a defense department venture that collaborates the university into studies of kill and overkill that has resulted in the slaughter and maiming of thousands of Vietnamese and Americans. To understand Berkeley's role in this movement, I spoke with architectural and urban historian Anthony Rainsford. Rainsford has written about the significance of People's Park in the history of sustainable architecture, user-centered design, and anti-capitalist planning. In his work, he outlines the political and cultural context that made it a significant event for designers. The main events that formed People's Park took place between 1968 and 1971. The activism around it was just one thin strain within a series of explosive social movements, among them the free speech movement, anti-war movement, disability rights movement, black power, and second wave feminist movements. But it was how the park spatialized the core tenets of these movements that has made it an icon of cooperative anarchism and bottom-up city building. In this episode, I discuss with Rainford how designers use their professional expertise in institutional positions within the university. Ironically, they use these to support and interpret a purposefully non-professional and anti-institutional act. Together, Rainsford and I will describe how People's Park and the countercultural movement that inspired it changed how architects and urban designers in Berkeley's College of Environmental Design approached the question of community. The shift that this episode describes was tied closely with the intentional ways the California counterculture viewed the question of community. Here's Rainsford. The counterculture did not take for granted that community just exists out there. In the earlier part of the 20th century, there was this taken for granted that people live in the neighborhood, they form a community. The counterculture, their viewpoint was community is something you actually have to create. This phrase, intentional community. You actually have to come together, you have to negotiate. It's difficult. It's a little bit like a psychotherapy. 
interact and figure out who these other people are and what your conflicts are. So they actually worked at it. That being said, a lot of their intentional communities failed. And then the question is, what happens when they come out of these bubbles, which are the communes and places like that? And then they're faced again with working office jobs or moving to other places. Somebody wrote, you know, their very famous book from the late 19th century community and society, Ferdinand Tunis. We're still facing that dichotomy today. This longing for this face-to-face group where we know each other, where personalities count, but we're all caught in a system which is requiring us to act differently. This episode goes on to describe how designers in the late 1960s and 70s used the notion of ecology to negotiate the requirements of face-to-face community interaction, while also tending towards novel understandings of the global interconnectedness that defines human and natural systems. Ecology lent designers a framework to understand these systems of human and environmental interaction while still prioritizing intimate interpersonal relationships. Through the story of People's Park and its aftermath, this episode traces how designers expanded from a definition of community as process linked to place, as we saw in the last episode, to community as a network, functioning simultaneously at multiple scales. More than merely a people-generated park, Rainsford described the park as fundamentally concerned with how to navigate scales to build an ecological society within a city. But to go back to the beginning, the first conflicts over this humble piece of land revolved around the question of institutional control. Here's Rainsford. The background of People's Park was that this was university land that was acquired in 1967. And it was acquired as part of a urban renewal project as well as a campus expansion project. So they had already planned to acquire this land way back in 1957, but they only got around to buying it 10 years later in order ostensibly to build dormitories. If you look at the history and the record and what was clear at the time is that the university really, their motivation was to rid the South Campus neighborhood where this was located of the hippie counterculture population. What they feared at the time is that the students were mingling with the hippies. Already the students are are a problem for the university because they're becoming politically radicalized. They're involved in the civil rights movement, the free speech movement happened a few years earlier. There's the third world liberation movement, right? All of these things are happening. So then they're mingling with these hippies and they're living in these communal houses and they're getting further radicalized, kind of this very anarchistic, unpredictable way. And so the university just sees this all as trouble. What they want to do is to separate out the university realm as a kind of pure institutional realm from what they see as as illegitimate, you know, hippie interlopers. And so this is this urban renewal plan. They don't really have a need for dormitories. They don't even have the funds to build them. And so it ends up being this empty lot for almost two years. And this is a sore spot for good reason. All people have lost their homes, this mark of institutional power that's resented. And so there are plans that are circulated around what to do with this. In 1968, when people along Berkeley's Telegraph Avenue began to organize around the injustices of eviction and university expansion, it brought together a variegated group. They included hippie, yippie, and new left movement representatives, showing a wide range of Bay Area subcultures. These included students, corporate dropouts, and radical anti-capitalists. Here's Rainsford. 
there's a specific group of people who actually come together to plan this event. One is a man named Stu Albert, who is a yippie, ends up writing the, the ad that brings people to this place. Another was Mike Delacour, who was a corporate hippie dropout, and he owned a, a store on Telegraph Avenue, a kind of an activist, but a, not, not a student. Someone named Big Bill Miller, who was part of a group called the Provost, and they were modeled on the San Francisco Diggers. They were a group that really were trying to overturn this idea of a capitalist commodity society. And they were promoting things like free food and free stores and things like this. What they do is they put an ad out in the Berkeley Barb, which calls on anyone who's willing to come with shovels and tools and sod and, and plants to build this park and it'll be whatever you want it to be. There'll be no bosses. Many more people showed up than they expected. So it ended up being thousands of people. And the people who showed up, there was a big spectrum, actually. Not all of them were that radical. Some of them were just like, oh, you know, this is a great idea. Let's help with the park and the neighborhood beautification. Others were, oh, we're taking university land. We're revolutionaries. So there's a huge range that's why it's, it's really, at the beginning, it's really hard to say that this had any kind of coherence. It's tempting as an architectural historian to always paint the architect as the center of the story, the driver of action and the change agent. In this case, though, it was the architects who were swept along in the current of a participatory movement, forced to adapt and adopt, and to consider whether their most important role was in designing the city or if that was best left to the greater collective. Beginning in April 1969, when citizens first tore down the fence surrounding the park and began digging and planting trees, architecture faculty, graduates, and students participated as observers, mediators, and community members. But no single person designed the project. Here's Rainsford. This is actually written down, it was described by uh, the architect Sim Vanderine, who was a participant in People's Park. At the time, Vanderine was a young architecture faculty at Berkeley's College of Environmental Design. Over the course of the 1960s, he had been working to bridge modernism's concerns for transformative technology with an interest in wider systems or patterns. He was inspired by the methods of Christopher Alexander as well as the sweeping vision of Buckminster Fuller. Before People's Park, Vanderine experimented with socio-technical systems while designing farm worker housing for the harsh environment of California's Central Valley. He also conducted surveys of the physical and psychological damage caused by the relentless uniformity of Berkeley's dormitory blocks. In 1969, in the unpublished manuscript Building a People's Park, Vanderine documented the process of the park's main organizers. Here's Rainsford. He describes going to Big Bill Miller's apartment where they would have these meetings. Kind of, they wouldn't call themselves a committee, but there was a kind of a group that would meet on a regular basis. And, and probably anyone who wanted to be part of that group could have been part of the group. And he says that people just put ideas out there. And, and then there's this discussion and there's no single planner. 
and nothing is planned out too far in advance. So it's this incremental plan. You try this out, you try that out. So things are sometimes planned and then someone else comes along and says, wait a minute, that's a bad idea. So one example is they want to build a fish pond. Someone says, oh no, children could drown. So then they turn it into an amphitheater. There's no master plan and there's no traditional architectural idea that somebody designs. It's an ongoing process. So from a muddy, empty lot came a people-built park, whose elements were eclectic and in-process and in many ways conventional. Grass, benches, a small amphitheater, play areas for children that use natural and found elements. The young landscape architect Clara Cooper Marcus was a faculty member at the time. In an interview with Suzanne Cowan and Ida Melika in their documentary Design as a Social Act, Marcus described how the university reacted to the usurpation of university land. The university got very worried about who, the, who are all these people coming in, hippie looking, planting trees, laying in the sun, and we can't have this happening. All of a sudden, overnight, the governor, who was Ronald Reagan at the time, put up an eight-foot chain-link fence around the park and had a National Guardsmen with guns inside. The park's builders and their allies reacted strongly. A public battle ensued in which students and activists fought with the forces of authority for control of this small piece of the city. Here's Marcus again. Protests and tear gassing and soldiers with bayonets and one person killed, one person blinded. It was just a really, really astonishing time. There were several reasons why the faculty at Berkeley's College of Environmental Design were sympathetic to the park's builders. Rainsford points out how a trend in play-space design helped the faculty interpret the meaning of People's Park. This included Marcus and Vanderine, as well as their colleague, Berkeley Urban Design faculty Donald Appleyard, who had published the book Planning the Pluralistic City in 1967. Here's Rainsford. Appleyard, but also Claire Cooper Marcus, and St. Vandry, to some extent, were interested in what they called adventure playgrounds. These were not new at the time. They actually emerged already in the 40s in Copenhagen. And the idea is that these parks could be built for children to play in, but rather than constructing a playground for them, they would just throw boards and rubble in these places, and then children would build their own places. So there was this interest in this as a way of developing autonomy and developing creative play, developing citizenship. And so people saw a parallel between what was happening in People's Park and the adventure playground. Here were people cooperating, they were coming together, they were building society around consensus rather than being passive subjects of administration from above. From a muddy lot, People's Park became in April of 1969 a landscape for recreation and togetherness. One of the first agendas was to build a rock venue, and so concerts drew young people to the park to sit in the grass and listen with eyes closed. Others wanted a place for children, so they built simple play equipment along with benches for parents to stay within eyesight. Grass, flowers, benches, trees, it was an altogether conventional setting, but it was the people that made it different from a typical suburban park filled with picnickers and families. With their countercultural fashion, psychedelic and folk music, their presence in wheelchairs and mime performances, People's Park occupants made the space entirely their own. 
This complex humanity on full display led academics at Berkeley's College of Environmental Design to wonder about the relationship between social life and environment. Could an authentic community space really be designed? These questions did not come out of nowhere. As Rainsford describes, a number of faculty had already defined themselves by the late 1960s as social scientists of the built environment. In the post-war period, interdisciplinary research in psychology, sociology, and systems theory inflected their design methods. They would conduct surveys, for example, post-occupancy studies of, of housing and things like that. And so one of the first things they did was to do survey and interview people. And they thought of this, this would be a great experiment and we could study it. The scientific approach to the happenings of the park was also encouraged by the university administration. Here's Claire Cooper Marcus describing how the university chancellor asked the College of Environmental Design to help make sense of what to do about the park. He actually asked the college, and then it came to me, to do a very rapid survey of the neighbors around People's Park to find out, did they would they like a park or not? I don't know, noon one day I was told, get together a questionnaire, train the, some students and send them out into the neighborhood to do a survey. And that night, Roger Montgomery, who later became a dean at I, sat up from nine o'clock till 2 a.m. the next morning analyzing the data, which turned out that people were sup supported the park. <laughs> One more context framed the way CED faculty interpreted and acted on the park. As previously mentioned, the school was enmeshed in the community design movement. Under the leadership of architecture faculty member Claude Stoller, the CED had community design centers that offered free services directly to poor and underrepresented communities. As one of the first schools to pursue these urban outposts, Berkeley had already begun to flip the script on community-driven rather than architect-driven urban regeneration. Here, Rainsford describes the logic behind the faculty's reaction to People's Park. In the early 60s, they had begun a series of community design centers. In fact, one was in Haight-Ashbury. And so these were nonprofit agencies that would bring design skills to underserved communities. They thought of using People's Park as a community design field station, they, they wanted to call it. The framework of community design allowed the faculty to see the park as a laboratory for participatory urbanism and an extension of the classroom. While the university leadership rejected the proposal to designate the park as a field station, the faculty's unanimous support for the proposition shows a shift in their understanding of the architect's role in university community relations. Here's Rainsford. You have people who are working as faculty realizing that the university is having a negative impact on the surrounding city through urban renewal, through expansion, and they want to mitigate some of that damage. They were kind of a bridge between the administration that wanted to really control it and the builders who had this anarchic mode. They wanted to preserve it, but also give it some institutional legitimacy. On May 28, 1969, just weeks after the first violent confrontation around People's Park, Bay Area activists and thinkers gathered on the University of California Berkeley campus on Lower Sproul Plaza. They called the gathering a teach-in 
on the politics of ecology. The event, which drew hundreds of people, was broadcast live on the local radio station KPFA. Several well-known figures, including Jane Jacobs and Paul Goodman, telegraphed their support of the People's Park movement. But the real story was not about celebrity, but about how the event helped participants form a consensus about the meaning of the park and its brutal suppression. The environmental activist Barry Weisberg of the Bay Area Institute spoke to a large crowd at the teach-in. This recording is from the original 1969 KPFA broadcast held by the Pacific Radio Archives. Inspired by Marxist teachings, Weisberg connected the occupation of the park to an interconnected system of social oppression. The issue of the park is related to, the, to racism, to the war, to the structure of the university, is to see that our struggle to save the park has to go beyond the park itself. And we have to look, I think, to those broader ecological issues which are symptomatic of our struggle. Weissman represented a growing consensus about the centrality of ecology in countercultural activism. Here's Rainsford describing how references to community made ecology radical. There's a group called Ecology Action, and they were criticizing the pollution of the Bay, trying to bring attention also to logical ideas, but they also talked about how we live on the Earth and on the planet, and they described it as the household. The origin of ecology is oikos, the house, so we have to manage our own household. And so a lot of their strategy, too, is to make connections between ecology and urban planning and development, development for profit, and how this was not only destructive ecologically, but also socially. There was a very influential anarchist out of New York named Murray Bookchin, and he wrote a pamphlet called Ecology and Revolutionary Thought. And this was really trying to think about the ways in which not only has industrial society destroyed streams and the air, but he was also thinking about human beings as biological social organisms with impulses, needs, desires that have also been adversely impacted by these kinds of systems. And so it's not only by living closer to nature, but also by living in community in a more interdependent way. This was part of how we saw ecology as revolutionary. Of all the Berkeley faculty, Sim Vanderein found this framing most persuasive. Sim Vanderein was the one who was really the most of a convert, became one of the hippie builders more than any of the faculty. The other were a little more skeptical. Donald Appleyard was quite skeptical, particularly he, he found the process quite chaotic and was often disturbed by it, the way in which people would just act in an overly individualistic manner. The question was, how could this individualism be channeled to support healthy human ecologies? By 1969, when he was asked to speak at the teach-in on the politics of ecology, Van der Rijn was already fully immersed in the movement. There, standing on the university steps above a huge crowd, he described how contemporary culture reinforced a lack of ecological awareness. In this speech given at the teach-in, he was especially critical of how individualism led to the neglect of public resources. Here's Van der Rijn. I think the issue is that while your parents and my generation, you know, that went to college during those flaccid Eisenhower years, uh, while 
we have been busy tending our lawns, making money, getting ahead in the job, paying our taxes, buying new cars and new ranch houses. Much of America has been plundered, polluted, and paved over, and often at public expense. You know, who is the public at this? And most Americans have just been too busy, I think, with, with their own uh, affluence to be concerned with and to notice the steady destruction of our public environments, of our comfortable old neighborhoods, like the South Campus, of our cities, of our parks, our open spaces, forests, lakes, streams, and beaches. We can hear Van der Rijn expanding from the park itself to a series of interconnected scales. Public space, neighborhood, city, open spaces, and ecosystems. These scalar jumps helped Van der Rijn locate the park relative to issues of consumption, suburbia, urban renewal, and environmental degradation. Rainsford points out how Van der Rijn borrowed from radical thinkers at the time to form this framework. Some of this was taken from Kenneth Galbraith's famous book, The Affluent Society. The centerpiece of that argument is that the federal government has, has basically squandered the national treasury and the national trust by creating this consumer society at the expense of commons. How then could architects channel ecological thinking to rebuild communities and reclaim the commons? The following fall, in late 1969, Van der Rijn took his students to conduct a design-build studio in rural Inverness. Joined by his former student Jim Campy, Van der Rijn and others began to form a collective that referred to themselves as the outlaw builders. Here's Rainsford. And so he decides to actually escape. And he already had a, a country place in Western Marin County. And he convinced the department chair to let him teach his studio class on his property and basically teach it as a version of People's Park where they would scavenge for materials and they would not decide anything in advance and just figure out what they could do with found objects. And the main difference, I think, is that this is very controlled, right? It was a small group of students. It was not just anyone. And it was in this rural location. So very different from the urban context of Berkeley. But I think, uh, you know, a lot of the ideas were the same. But the distance between the undeveloped site in West Marin and urban Berkeley belied the fact that the two sites were deeply connected. Since the late 18th century, architects and urbanists in the U.S., Britain, and throughout Europe have used the countryside as a place of reconnecting with the values of community. This was often done precisely because of perceptions that they were apart from the conflicts and social movements that are associated with urban life. But this separateness was always more conceptual than structural. Here's Rainsford. There was no escaping from industrial capitalist society. I mean, it was it was everywhere, including in the countryside. And so they were doing the, what a lot of hippies were doing at the time was just to kind of live off the the excess and the and the cast off products of this society. Vanderine and Campy's outlaw builder studio along with other experiments in alternative forms of living in rural California, were deeply tied to the culture, economic development, and material flows of capitalist urban life. It's notable, though, to see how architecture pedagogy mirrored the development of California subculture at large. At this time, experimental communities were mushrooming throughout the region. Each commune, as they were called, had its own definition of community, 
though, as Rainsford describes, they often shared characteristics. But I think all of them, to, to a greater or lesser extent, were interested in experimenting with the alternative to the traditional family and also to sharing work and sharing often possessions also and sharing the household and also developing a kind of independence from the larger workforce, the bureaucratic capitalist <laughs> office space. While each commune had its own values, they weren't meant to be completely isolated. Commune leaders maintained communication infrastructures, including a newsletter published to help their members network and share information. The goal was to be independent from corporate and political control and yet interdependent on each other. To do this, they used an atomized strategy that privileged face-to-face interaction while acting as interconnected nodes in service to wider social transformation. Here, Rainsford describes what this meant at an urban scale. If enough communes were close together in a city like Berkeley, that they could actually create a new kind of urban environment. So now we leave behind California's rural communes, which shared so much with 19th century communal experiments, and return to the city to hear how these ideas began to transform attitudes towards architecture and urban design in Berkeley. Here, Rainsford describes at length a design collaborative called People's Architecture, founded around 1969 by Les Shipnook, along with other trained architects and planners. Shipnook was not involved in the planning of People's Park, but its model inspired the group to develop speculative plans for the city of Berkeley's future development. Rainsford tells us about the People's Architecture's plans for development of neighborhood blocks around Berkeley for the Hearst Community Plan in 1969 and a plan in 1970 for a generic housing block in Berkeley that collectivized land by blurring the relationship between buildings and the street. Here's Rainsford. He was part of a group called People's Architecture that emerged in the wake. Then was involved in a larger project which they saw as expanding on People's Park to the city and the region. The first set of drawings actually were around something called Hearst Community Plan, but it was basically land that had been demolished by the BART system, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, to build the North Berkeley BART station. They did a cut and cover technique where they actually demolished a whole, I don't know, eight or nine blocks of houses, (laughs) dug a trench, covered it over and then they were going to they still own the land but they were going to develop it so this became the site of something called the people's park annex after the it was fenced off they built a new people's park on part of this site and bart didn't do anything about it they just let them do it and so it continued for a while so people's architecture they developed a whole plan for this not just the annex, but all of the area around it, including housing, including a daycare center, including a giant geodesic dome for concerts or gatherings. And they proposed closing off all of these streets and creating kind of a super block and connecting houses together in, in various ways. And so that was kind of an intermediary step in this architectural rethinking of the city. What does it mean if the park expands out into the neighborhood and becomes the city? early the next year, in 1970, they published a plan, and it was not a specific plan, but it was kind of a generic 
set of blocks in Berkeley. And it looks like those neighborhoods where you have bungalows and two-story houses and maybe one or two apartment buildings. And so one of those blocks of the lots. And so they proposed eliminating the lot lines and turning a lot of the streets into park and just getting rid of a lot of streets altogether, connecting the buildings together at their second floor, getting rid of a lot of interior partitions in, in the apartment buildings so that this would be an environment that would be open to communal cohabitation and leading towards a collectivization, essentially, of urban land. Rainsford points out how different this was from a unitized modernist approach to collective housing. The attempt was to recapture some of the magic of the reused and adapted Victorian semi-detached houses of the South Campus area. It was in contrast to the harsh lines affected by the prefabricated components of the city of Berkeley's existing dormitory blocks and corporate housing developments. There actually was no demolition of buildings. So it was Mm. all adaptive reuse. They actually liked the scale of these old buildings. They liked Torians and they liked the craftsman houses. They just wanted to change them a little. The, The buildings that they hated actually were the more recent apartment buildings. They're called the Tiki Tackies, which is from that folk song. And so they had concrete proposals for those. What they would do is demolish a lot of the interior walls and partitions and some of the floors and create these crazy spaces with like big communal dining rooms and you know, communal kitchens and, and a lot of variety. So they would be very quirky. And there was a lot of do-it-yourself carpentry involved and how to cut holes in floors. The combination of imaginative planning and do-it-yourself guidebooks fit within the model of ecological community that was inspired by People's Park. It was personal and individualized and at the same time invested in interdependence between nodes in a larger system. The People's Architecture Plan was never realized. The city of Berkeley went through a period of struggle throughout the 1970s over the city council's attempts to develop its western quadrant. This included a prolonged battle over a planned industrial park along its waterfront. The reality of participation in community meetings and city council elections fell short of the idealized community control that some activists desired. The forces of industrial and corporate development intersected with real estate development and housing demand as the Bay Area grew in the 1970s and into the 1980s. In this context, small wins related to closing streets for pedestrians and holding land in small parks and greenways came to characterize the aesthetics and also the truncated promise of the early ecological revolution. Designers faced the same entrenched economic and political systems as other radical groups in this period. As Rainsford pointed out at the beginning of this episode, when most communes failed, the question was, what now? Sin van der Rijn's career is a very interesting way of tracking that because his next step was to go to Sacramento and work for Governor Brown under his first administration. Brown appointed van der Rijn as state architect of California. In that role, he became a major force in the promotion of what is now called sustainable architecture. His first project, the Gregory Bateson Office Building, became a demonstration for energy efficiency and appropriate technology. Rainsford pointed out the irony of the radical being co-opted or rather absorbed into the mainstream. 
in a way you could say, well, he decides bureaucracy is almost all right. And that's where ecological design goes mainstream. And you go from there through the 80s to get to the lead certified buildings and all of that. There's a way in which you could think of the mainstreaming of this in ways that are extreme. As state and university bureaucracies absorbed ecological design principles and expertise, many of its more radical premises were difficult to maintain. This was especially true of questions of community. Still, we can't reduce this story to one of failed hippie idealism. What happened in Berkeley was a shift from the idea of architect as facilitator of community life, organized around specific places, to a more radical notion of ecological communities that function simultaneously at multiple scales in an interconnected web. Universities in this case played a paradoxical role. They both provoked resistance to institutional expansion in their own neighborhoods, and also catalyzed a larger conversation about how citizens and architects should best participate in the complex dynamics of development and ecological systems. As we'll see in the next episode, this shift opened new roles for designers and changed the way that they address questions of racial and economic justice. You've been listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Issue 6, Community is a Practice. Episode 3 of Issue 6 was researched, written, directed, and produced by Anna Goodman, with contributions from Anthony Rainsford. It was edited by Kurt Gambetta and Joseph Bedford, with post-production assistance from Ethan Curtis. Thanks to the Graham Foundation for advanced studies in the fine arts for their generous support.